First John chapter two, beginning in verse 12, John writes, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you've overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you've known the father. I've written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the wicked one. The passage is in the context of John asking and answering the question of what it means to be a Christian. Christians, according to the Bible, are born. They're not manufactured. He's asking and answering the question about what does it mean to be a Christian and, and, and what, how can I be sure that I'm born again? And remember, as we followed along at the chapter 1 and chapter 2, there were tests that he offers. Has your life been changed? Has your heart changed? What about your thoughts and your deeply held convictions? Now John's going to address three groups. Little children in verse 12 and then again in verse 14. The fathers in verse 13 and 14. The young men in verse 13 and 14. Each is addressed twice. In verses 12 and 13, John uses... The present tense. And in verse 14, he uses the past tense. And as you're looking at this and you're reading it, you should be able to ask yourself this question. Who are these people? And why is it that John changes the verb tenses in this particular place? Some have argued that John is addressing different age groups within the church. Others argue that John is making a reference to the stages of, mature, of spiritual growth and maturity in the Lord and growth and maturity in the body. John uses the term children to describe all of the readers who are picking up this book and reading it. That's the way it's used in chapter 2 verse 1 when he says, my little children. Remember I told you that that word is Agapitos, which means little loved ones, the ones who I love. He uses it again in verse 18, again in verse 28, again in chapter 3, verse 7, again in chapter 4, verse 4, again in chapter 5, verse 21. So there seems to be good reason to believe that it applies to all Christians, men and women. So why does John change tenses? By tenses, I mean in verse 12. Remember, he says, I am writing. Verse 13, I write to you. Verse 14, I have written to you. The reason I suspect is because he wants to emphasize the point that he's making. And the emphasis, of course, is on the need for growth. For the need for maturation. Remember, Jesus is, or John has given us a series of tests to determine whether or not the person can rightfully, appropriately call themselves a Christian or a Christ follower or a believer. Remember, there was a moral test, a character test. 
Have you really been changed from the inside? There was, if you will, a relational test. Do you really love each other? And now John is going to apply yet another test. It's a doctrinal test with practical implications. Are you spiritually maturing? Are you growing up? The test is going to continue in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. The test becomes, do you love the Lord or do you love the things in this world? And so, he begins. Now remember that some families mark the growth of their children in familiar ways. Some of you may have grown up in a, in a household where, you know, you're in the house and all of a sudden your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, or, or whoever, they mark your growth by taking a pencil and then marking your height in the garage. And they'll write your name next to it and they'll say, whatever your name is, five years old, six years old. Some of you might have had a cement driveway or cement sidewalks where you place your hand in the, in the wet cement to mark a particular moment so that you can go back in time and place your hand in the place where to see how, how much growth or maturation has taken place. You may have a family album with children or grandchildren and you see this person when they're born and when they're toddlers and when they're growing up. You see them crawling and walking and shopping. But the true tests of fellowship are to obey in chapter 1 verse 5. Walking and not just talking. Loving and not hating in chapter 2 verse 7. And the truth. Believing the truth instead of believing lies. There's a moral test. Obey. Social test. Love. Doctrinal test. Truth. And so it's supposed to prompt you to ask the question about yourself. What about my spiritual growth? How am I doing? And so John is inviting the reader to, in a very real sense, ask and answer the question. Do you remember how you grew up? Now again, we're not talking about the physical part of growing up. We're talking about the spiritual part of growing up. Can you articulate your journey or growth since the beginning of your, your conversion when you accepted Christ and you experienced forgiveness? Can you articulate that? Can you remember in verses 12 and 13? And then can you articulate in verse 14 how you've grown and developed and matured in Christ? Have you grown so this becomes yet another part of the test. Has Jesus changed you? Has he changed your outlook and your attitude towards others? Do you believe the truth? Are you growing? Look at verse 12. I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. What's interesting is the word translated little children... Again, in this particular portion, is that same word in verse 1. It means 
born ones. It comes from a Greek verb which means to come into existence. In English, we use words to describe offspring or progeny. Those are words that we use to describe children who are our physical, biological children. And in a very real sense, that's the way John is using the term. And I think the reason why he's using that term is because we're talking about a spiritual birth. Remember the Bible talks about how you have to be born again and you have to be born from on high. When our children are born, they go through stages. Someone has said that there are four stages in life. The first stage, childhood. The second stage, youth. The third stage, young adult. The fourth stage, hey, you know, you look really good for your age. <laughs> I think I'm in the fourth stage. So who are the children? These are the newborn Christians. These are the people who have heard the gospel and experienced grace and mercy. What have they experienced? Forgiveness of sin in verse 12. A personal relationship with the heavenly father in verse 13. And again, here's part of the challenge. The emphasis isn't on age. I'm going to suggest to you that here the emphasis is on everyone who's experienced what it means to be born again. What it means to have a real relationship with God in Christ. Everyone who believes in Jesus, who's repented of their sin, who's come to faith, who believe in Jesus, who are born from on high. According to John's first, in the first chapter, he says, to them he gave the power to be called the children of God. And so, in real life... Children have to face fears. I was watching some stupid YouTube video and a mother was talking to their four-year-old child about going to college and the four-year-old said, I don't want to go to college. She goes, but you need to be thinking about what you're going to do for the rest of your life. He goes, I don't want to think about what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. There's kinds of Things that we can do to artificially create a mechanism to try and force our children to think about what it means to grow up. But it should be age appropriate. We grow in Christ. We learn to face temptations. We come to know and appreciate the resources that are available to us. In young adulthood, we learn to experience victory. And we move from, victor from failure to victory. And so part of the point in adolescence is to not just simply measure your life by the failures and the difficulties and the setbacks. And older adults, you gain wisdom and you teach the young. And the whole cycle is supposed to continue. So what's one of the first things that a new believer learns? And experiences forgiveness of sin. Like I said, I'm really old, but I remember, I remember the night that I got saved. It was March 3rd, 1973. 
I remember walking down an aisle. I remember praying a prayer to receive Jesus as my Savior. And I remember literally a weight, a cloud of darkness being lifted from my shoulders as I experienced cleansing and forgiveness. The real sense that my sins were washed away, that they were cleansed, that that I was forgiven. And so, when he says, I write to you little children so that you know that your sins would would be forgiven, note what it says. We're forgiven for his name's sake. You're not forgiven simply because you feel forgiven. You're not simply forgiven because you want desperately to be forgiven. John places the reality of forgiveness in the very identity of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. A man was telling a friend about an argument that he had with his wife. He said, oh, every time I get into an argument with my wife, she gets historical. And the guy said, you mean hysterical? He goes, no, I mean historical. She brings up every bad thing that I've ever done, ever. I know, thanks for that laugh. Thank you for that. What's really interesting about that is Jesus never does that. Jesus never shows up and brings up the history, if you will. He's forgiven us. But I want you to think about something. The devil wants to constantly remind you of who you were, of what you were, of what you've done. And so John is going to point out the reality that all Christians share, that Jesus is our sin bearer. He has forgiven us. He's brought liberating grace. He's brought cleansing from guilt. The new believer knows that he or she is no longer guilty of sin and judged for sin or condemned by sin or punished by sin. You've trusted Jesus. He's your sin bearer. And all of that is great and all of that is good and all of that is wonderful. But there's more to being a Christian than simply having experienced the knowledge of the forgiveness of sin. And so in verse 13 he says, I write to you fathers because you've known him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you've overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children Because you've known the Father. The verse begins with a reference to spiritual fathers. Then it speaks of spiritual young men. Then it speaks of spiritual children. I'm going to suggest to you again that John is bringing up not just about men versus women or age, but he's talking about a process of spiritual growth and maturation. And for that reason... I want to just reverse the order just for a moment. Instead of beginning with the fathers and continuing with the young men, let's go right to the end where it says, I write to you little children because you've known the father. And the reason why I want to go right to the end is because the word translated little children 
In verse 13, put your finger on it. I write to you fathers. I write to you young men. I write to you children, little children. The word little children is a different word than the word that's translated little children in verse 12. Don't you find that interesting? The word in verse 13 isn't the word born ones. It's a different Greek word. It actually seems to mean infants or babes. It was a word that you would use to describe children who were being breastfed. We might even translate this because of the culture in which we live, bottle babies. I write to you, bottle babies. Why does he use that term? Again, he's using the term babe, infant, and immature, I think for a reason. What does John say about the infants? He says, you've known the father. The reason why this becomes an important point is because for every Christian, every Christian who's truly a Christian, who's truly born again, who's truly experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ, they are aware that they have a heavenly father. They're aware that they're a part of a larger family. When I was talking with my little grandchild this, after, this, this evening, before the service, I, I pointed out to his mom and his dad that babies are more concerned about faces than places. A baby doesn't care if you're at grandpa's house or grandma's house or your house or somebody else's house. What they care about is the face in front of them. They want their mother's face. They want their father's face. These are children under care and supervision. And so he's making a reference to the, the type of child who's under care and supervision of tutors and teachers. These are the ones who've just begun the, the growth they're, they've just begun the journey. But what's important for each and every one of you to remember is they're on the journey. They're taking the journey. They are growing. The Christian who grows and matures loves the father and then begins to despise and hate what the father hates. And we're going to skip just very quickly. We're going to come back to it in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. So John is going to bring out, guess what? People who are really born again, people who are truly saved by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to love what the Father loves. They're going to love what Jesus loves. Later, John will warn the reader don't love the world in verse 15. Growing, maturing Christians stay away from this world. And by world, it's, it's, it's the word cosmos. We get the word cosmopolitan from it. It doesn't mean the world of the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and a thing called love. It's not talking about the beauty and the majesty of creation. What it's talking about is the sum and the substance of all of the human beings who stand in opposition to the things of God and to the gospel of God. The world invites you to live on sinful substitutes like entertainment 
like distraction. But John says, we're children of God. And again, those of you with children know what children want. And by the way, children are a blessing. Babies are a blessing. It's not a bad thing to have a baby. And then when you get to be my age and your children have their children, you love your babies. But here's the point. The new Christian, the baby Christian, is excited. You know that just like real babies, they find comfort and peace and security in mom and dad. The new Christian finds comfort and peace and security in forgiveness and relationship and the, the sweet comfort of the presence of God. The new Christian is aware of God's presence in their life and they may not have a sophisticated theological vocabulary. They don't know everything about everything, but they know that they're saved and they know their heavenly father. But they have challenges. As you can also be aware that babies don't have a great deal of discernment. Babies will often stick whatever they find into their mouth and they don't care if it's a snail they don't care if it's green and slimy. They don't care if it belongs to somebody else. In the real world, what do you think makes a baby more uncomfortable? A dirty diaper or the person changing his or her diaper? I think you know the answer. Babies are just simply concerned that there's a problem downstairs and they're not concerned who's changing their diaper. They don't take your name. They're not, they're not overcome with issues of modesty or immodesty. They're not ashamed. As we grow up, we exchange dirty diapers for personal hygiene. We begin to care about things. It's a sign of growth. In the real world, there are at least two kinds of babies those who grow and mature normally and those who don't grow and mature normally. And by the way, if you're a mom or your dad and if your children have any kind of developmental issue or growth issue, most normal parents see that as a cause for concern and alarm. Normal babies do grow normally. And so the spiritual application is exactly the same. Normal Christians who love the Lord should be involved in the growth process. With proper nutrition and care, most babies manage to grow up. And children are a blessing. And churches with brand new baby Christians are exciting. So, question. What is the singular element that helps children grow? Food. Nothing is more traumatizing than seeing starving children. And so we're committed to feeding and growing and maturing the believer. People wonder about that. They go, why do you spend so much time reading the Bible, talking about the Bible, teaching the Bible? 
And I think that you know the, the answer. It's because this is food. This is real food. You know, tomorrow, most of you will be able to remember what you ate. Most of you will be, will be able to say, I had turkey, I had trussing, I had green beans or mashed potatoes or whatever it is that you eat at Thanksgiving. Most people, if you ask them the question, what's the best meal you've ever had? We'll have to pause and think. What was the most exciting, the most wonderful, the most amazing food that I've ever eaten in my life? Most people don't remember that. Most people simply remember the last thing that they ate. But for the Christian, that's what feeding on the Bible. It's not just reading. It's studying, nurturing. How do you help babies grow? You feed them. And again, as you watch those ads and commercials on TV and they show you a baby with its stomach bloated and its, its ribs distended and little toothpicks for, for legs and arms, your heart rightfully breaks because there's nothing more compelling than to see a, a child starving. And that's exactly what's happening for John as he's writing to these people because he understands that the greatest source of developmental disability and stunt, stunted growth is a lack of proper nutrition. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the world, word that you may grow thereby. This is why we have Bible studies. This is why there's men's studies and women's studies and student ministries. Babies don't eat steak. Unless it's pureed. Babies need air. Babies need exercise. Babies need comfort and growth. It was George Bernard Shaw who said, Youth is such a wonderful thing, it's a shame to waste it on the young. But there are definite advantages to being young. There are Christians who simply don't seem to enjoy the Bible. And that causes me great concern. For the person whose focus is on fellowship, who focuses on forgiveness and fellowship and forgiveness and fellowship and forgiveness and fellowship, but is unwilling to enter into the fight, it shows me again that there's just a little bit of a drawback. There's a little bit of a stunted growth. And that's part of the point that John is getting ready to make. By fight, he means the spiritual fight. He means the fight with the enemy. He means the fight with the wicked one. And so that's why it says in verse 13, I write to you fathers because you've known him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you've overcome the wicked one. These are people who are more mature. They don't just simply focus on fellowship and forgiveness. They're willing to enter into the fight. And again, by fight, I mean the enemies that we really have as Christians. The world, the flesh, the devil. 
John is going to be talking about this a great deal as this book unfolds. There are mature believers who have experienced a long obedience and calling in Christ. And so again in verse 13 where it says, I write to you fathers, here fathers seems to be a reference to those who are mature in the faith. So if you're reading fathers and you're a woman and you think, he's not talking about me. No, he's talking about men and women who are mature in the faith. Why? Because they know Jesus. How? From the beginning. From what? Here, beginning isn't a reference to the beginning of time, but rather a reference to the beginning of the ministry of, of Jesus. That which was from the beginning. Remember the opening verse? That which is from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard with our eyes, or seen with our eyes, which we've uh, handled with our hands concerning the word of life. He's talking about the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. So these are the aged saints who have been walking with Christ for years and years. They measure their relationship with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ, not in terms of days or weeks or months, but decades. And for some of you, you can measure your real relationship with God in terms of decades. The eternal Jesus had no beginning but here it's a reference to the acquisition of the new nature, the human nature, the incarnation of Jesus. Now, the reason why this becomes an important part, too, is these are the mature believers who have experienced a long obedience, who call Jesus Christ, him who is from the beginning. I think it means more than just simply the statement, I've known Jesus for a very long time. I think it means I've known Jesus for a very long time and I know what Jesus said about himself and I know what the apostles said about him. Remember this very apostle John in the opening verses of his gospel in John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The mature believer knows Jesus and knows what the Bible and the apostles have to say about Jesus. And so whoever these mature believers are, these are also believers who have acquired information about the walk that they've entered into. At this point, you should ask yourself this question. How far... Have I come in the journey? Where am I at? How far have I come and how far do I have to go? And so John is basically going to invite us to think about, can we confirm our ongoing growth? You know, do you remember as a kid growing up, your aunt, your uncle, your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, whoever it is that you hadn't seen for quite some time, so they, they, they look at you and they go, Maya, you have grown. And you didn't sense that. You felt pretty much the same way that you did the last time you saw him. So how do you measure the growth? John writes, I've written to you fathers. Because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now once again, 
John addresses fathers, young men. In verse 13 and 14, the phrase fathers, remember, is a reference to the seasoned saint. And one of the characteristics of maturity is to know more than you used to know. One of the measures of maturity is, do you know a little bit more than you used to know a day ago, a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, 10 years ago? I've had people say to me, I've been a Christian for 30 years. Really? Can you tell me the theme of any book in the Bible? I've been a stunted, immature, developmentally disabled Christian for 30 years. Well, that's not helpful. And see, this is the point. When he says, I've written to you fathers because you've known him from the beginning. Again, John is in effect saying, you've known the Lord. For a very, very long time. But can I ask you a question? Again, do you know more about the Lord Jesus than when you first began your journey? Is it safe to say that you accept Christ as your Lord and your Savior and you open up the Bible and you begin to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You read the book of Acts, you begin to go through the general epistles, you begin this adventure, this walk, this friendship, this relationship, this maturation. Do you know more about the Lord Jesus than when you began the journey? Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. Paul wanted to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Can you imagine meeting Paul and say, hey, Paul, what would you like? I'd like to grow more. I'd like to know more. I want to understand more about Jesus. I want to know him more. I want to love him more. I want to understand him more. I want to comprehend who he is and what he's done. Paul wanted to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Do you? Now, again, as you start to add these things up and you're asking and answering the question, are you a Christian? Have you been changed from the inside? Have you passed the test? Do you love each other? Do you understand and appreciate the truth? Are you growing? It's interesting to me. Because if you think that you know as much as you could possibly know, then the chances are you're still immature. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. He basically says, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I've begotten you through the gospel in verse 16. Therefore, he says, I urge you to imitate me. Why am I bringing this up? How many physical fathers do you have? Now, some of you might rightly say, well, I have a biological father, and then I have the guy who raised me, 
but the guy who raised me, is this just much my father? I mean, is your father the guy who, who donated your DNA or is, it the father, is your father the person who tucked you in at night, who went to all of your PTA meetings, who helped you learn to ride your bike, who, who was there through thick and thin? But I mean this in a physical sense. Most human beings have one physical father unless you're some crazy scientific experiment that I don't even want to go into. <laughs> Most people have one spiritual father. In what sense? The person who led you to Christ. Well, what if the person who led you to Christ is a woman? They're a woman, but they're also your spiritual father. In what sense? They led you to Christ. The person, we might use a different term. We might think of them as a spiritual parent. A spiritual father is capable of three things. Number one, procreation. Number two, confrontation. Number three, illustration. In what sense? The spiritually mature are capable of reproduction. This is the difference between the immature and the mature. So if a person says, I'm a mature Christian... And you say to them, have you ever led a single person to the Lord? And they say, no. I'm going to suggest to you that in part, what I think he's making reference to is that the spiritually mature are capable of reproduction. The spiritually immature will not lead others to Christ. But the spiritually mature will reproduce by bringing people to Christ because they themselves have been brought to Christ. They know about the forgiveness, which we just talked about, and the fellowship, which we just talked about, and the familiarity with the Father, which we've just talked about, and the truth, which we've just talked about. But the spiritually mature cannot rightfully be called mature. Until I think that this becomes a part of who they are when they bring others into the family. Paul called Timothy my own son in the faith. Paul told the Philippians, I have no man like-minded as a son with his father. He has served with me in the gospel in Philippians chapter 2 verse 20. You can lead someone to Christ. who's decades older than you. And it might seem awkward, particularly if you're an older person and a younger person led you to Christ. And you go, you see, you see that person? He's my spiritual father. But remember, that's what I'm talking about. And the spiritually mature also have to be capable of confrontation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I need to warn you. If you're a mom and if you're a dad and you're unwilling to confront your children, are you a good parent or a bad parent? Bad is right. Will a good parent say, stay away from the hot stove? Will the good parent say, look both ways before you cross the street? 
Is a good parent interested in confronting the child, especially if the child is at risk? But here the word warn is an interesting word in the Greek language. It means to speak to the heart of the matter. The idea is to confront the human heart with the word of God. I'm going to suggest to you that the spiritually mature are able to bring other people to Christ. I'm going to suggest to you that the spiritually mature are able to warn people about the truth. In other words, they speak to the human heart with the word of God about the things that matter. A spiritual parent has the responsibility to confront those he or she has won to Christ, to lead them, to guide them, to speak the truth in love as they grow. And finally, there's illustration. Paul says, imitate me in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. What does that mean? Is he saying, wear a robe like I do, walk around Anatolia and Greece and plant churches and have people beat you and be shipwrecked and hope that you get your head chopped off? Is that what he's talking about? I don't think that that's what he's talking about. He's talking about his life as an illustration of what it means to know and love and honor and serve the Lord. I heard a story about a person who was talking about how they came to Christ. He talked about how one day he was walking outside of his house and he's a dad and he's walking outside of his house and his oldest son, who was young at the time, started following him and he started taking giant steps in order to keep up with his dad. His dad was walking and he's walking after his dad and he's taking giant steps and the guy said, for some reason it, it just struck me like lightning. It just hit me all of a sudden. A voice inside of my heart said, where are your steps leading that boy? He began, he became consciously aware that the things that he said and the places where he went and the life that he lived was going to impact his son. And God used that moment to bring him into a right relationship with himself. For him to cry out to God. To believe that Jesus Christ was the Lord. He wanted so much to be a godly father who could walk in a direction of godliness. He realized his life was an illustration. You are writing a gospel. You know this. A chapter each day by the deeds that you do, by the words that you say. Others read what you write, whether faithless or true. Tell me, what is the gospel according to you? Abraham Lincoln said that every person over 40 is responsible for his or her own face. You might play the card, look, I... If you don't like the way that I look, blame my mother and my father. This is the cards that I've been dealt. Abraham Lincoln said no. Much of who you are after the age of 40 is, is your face one that smiles or frowns or wrinkles? It's true in physical matters, but it's also true in spiritual matters. We're responsible 
for the choices that we make and the decisions that we make and the opportunities that we embrace. You know, in a very real sense, physically, our face reflects our personality, doesn't it? But in a very real sense, also, our spiritual face reflects our spiritual personality. To the young, he reminds them of their strength. Because you are strong, he says, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. I like that. Because here's what he's saying. Maturation means forgiveness. It also means fellowship and freedom. But there comes a time in each and every Christian's life when they need to be prepared to stand up and fight and resist the opposition. The Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. To the young, he reminds them of their strength because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the wicked one. In other words, in your growth and maturation, you've come to the place where you understand the wiles of the devil, the strategies of the devil, the temptations of the devil, and you're willing to take the necessary resources to enter into the fight. You know how you know when you're old. You know when you're old, when you see yourself saying, you know, when I was young, you might say, you know, when I was young, I could remember when I could walk so far and I could take a punch and I could do this and I could do that. You know, when you're young, you, you have strength. And the older you get, your eyes start to go and your knees start to buckle and, and the joints just don't seem to work. And you, you, you reach down to pick up your socks because they're wrinkled and you realize you're not even wearing socks. And you know that all of a sudden you've passed some sort of threshold. But here's part of the point that I think that I want to make. John knows for the spiritually mature, strength comes from God's word and God's word makes us strong. When you're strong... I, let me put it a little bit differently. When you're strong, you're not a pushover. Do you remember you take a little kid and you just push him down? But when that kid grows up, and now they're six feet tall and they're 180 pounds and rippling muscle, and you push them and they don't go down. You're not a pushover anymore. And John is, in effect, saying, are you a pushover? Have you ever been threatened or intimidated? You probably realized something as you were growing up. Maybe you were picked on when you were a child. But as you grow up, and you get stronger, and you get more disciplined, hopefully people are less and less threatening and less and less intimidating. But it's interesting to me how many Christians are soft targets for the devil. How easily they're threatened. How easily they're intimidated. How easily they're pushed over. I'm going to ask you kind of a hard question. 
Are you a pushover for Satan? Do you live in constant temptation? Do you constantly consent to sin? John is writing to those who have grasped the revelation that knowing Jesus means conforming him into our life. How does the young man cleanse his way? By paying attention to God's word and obeying God's word. And so now John writes to the spiritually strong and the mature. And he is in effect saying you're not a pushover anymore because you've overcome Satan. You know how to deal with the temptations and the difficulties. And the secret to Christian growth and maturity, according to John, is to allow the word of God to dwell in you. The word abide means to come to live. So the word of God in verse 14 where it says, I've written to you fathers because you have known him who's from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God in verse 14 abides in you, comes to live in you. The word of God shows up and then it lives in you. It dwells in you. And I'm not saying don't have a Bible and don't look it up, but there will come a point in your life where guess what? You're going to know Ephesians chapter six. You're going to know John chapter one, verse one. You're going to know John chapter three. You're going to know John chapter 17. It's going to become a part of your life. You're going to know about the Beatitudes in Matthew. You're going to know about Jesus's trip at age 12 in the book of Luke. It's going to become second nature to you. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of who you were meant to be. When you get a grip on the word of God, it gets a grip on you. And now all of a sudden you begin to understand. All mature Christians are Bible literate. And for the person who is immature, it makes perfect sense to me that not everybody's going to know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Not everybody's going to know about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not everybody's going to know everything about everything. But the, guess what? When you grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth, everything that the Bible has to say becomes of interest to you. Show me a person who has power with God and I'll show you a person who loves the Bible. Do you want to get pumped up? Then get on a soul building program. And you're going to need to stretch your spiritual muscles by doing some serious Bible study. And as you do that, as you read it and memorize it and practice it, it just becomes a part of your life. Think about what John is saying. The mature Christian is marked, number one, by strength. And number two, by the presence of the word of God in your heart. And what's the third characteristic of the mature Christian? You've overcome the wicked one. We know what that means literally, the devil. And it's okay to put the word the devil. He is the wicked one. But what this also means is success. This is success over the devil. Satan preys on the weak and the immature. In the New Testament, there are two words that are translated wicked. One word has the meaning of those who are just simply content to live their life apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel. That's not what this word is. This word is poneros. This means someone who is intrinsically wicked. 
This word means someone who's not content to be wicked all by themselves. They insist that you be wicked with them. And that's why we know it has to do with the devil. As a matter of fact, the English word pornography is descended from this word, poneros. Poneros is a wickedness that's intrinsic to the person who's practicing the wickedness. The word refers to people who are content, not simply to keep the wickedness away. It's a reference to the person who manufactures wickedness, distributes wickedness for the purpose of extending and disrupting the perversion. The devil wants to pull you down. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your mind and your body and your family. And so he'll tempt you in your mind and he'll tempt you in your heart and he'll tempt you with suffering. He'll tempt you in every way that he can possibly tempt you in order to bring you down. I want you to think about this for just a moment. John says, I want you strong. Satan says, I want you weak. John says, strength comes from God's word. So where do you think weakness comes from? It's a refusal to understand, embrace, and allow it to be the most important part of your life. Jesus relied on God's word when he was tested by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You all know that. Warren Wearsby writes, quote, After Jesus defeated Satan, he was ready to begin his public ministry. No man has the right to call others to obey who hasn't obeyed himself, unquote. Jesus came in part to conquer Satan. And according to the Bible, humanity is bound under Satan's rule. The death and the resurrection of Jesus shatters that authority and that rule. Believers have been set free from Satan's authority. And you've been given power and strength to overcome him. Forgiveness? Yes. Fellowship? Yes. A willingness to fight? This means you're growing up. Have you fought the battle? Have you overcome the wicked one? Do you understand his strategies? Do you understand how he tries to pervert you into thinking different thoughts so that you wouldn't want to submit to God. William Thompson, later Lord Kelvin, was one of the great physicists in the 19th century in England. And when he was away at college, his father wrote to him, he said, quote, you are young. Take care not to be led in what is wrong. A false step now, the acquiring of an improper habit might ruin your life. Frequently look back on your conduct and learn wisdom for the future. On the road to maturity, it's important to make good decisions. And guess what? Every mom, every dad, every grandma, every grandpa who's ever had a conversation with their children or grandchildren have made this, had this conversation. I need you to make good decisions. I need you to make good choices. I heard the story of a young man who was talking to an older man who was, he was taking over his job as a bank president 
And he said, I've come to you for advice. And the older man looked at the younger man and he said, young man, you want advice? Two words, good decisions. The young man said, thank you, sir. How do I make good decisions? One word, young man, experience. But how does one gain experience, he said. Two words, young man, bad decisions. The choices you make are molding you and shaping you. So how does the believer overcome Satan? We draw near to God. We pray. We ask for wisdom. We overcome Satan by God's word. We refuse to yield our members to sin's enticements. We overcome by clothing ourselves in the armor of God, Ephesians 6. We overcome by not giving in to anger or giving a place to the devil. We submit to God. We resist the devil. We overcome by by refusing the invitation. In Proverbs 1.10, it says, My son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. John's point. Remember what we learned? Moral tests. Has your life changed? Relational tests. Do you love each other? Doctrinal test. Do you love the truth? Are you growing? Are you growing? William Barclay points out just very quickly, he says, all Christians are little children, for all can regain innocence by the forgiveness of Christ. All Christians are like fathers, like full-grown responsible men who can think and learn their way deeper and deeper into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. All Christians are young men with glorious and vigorous strength to fight and win battles against the tempter and his power. It seems that indeed is John's wider meaning. Fathers, young men, children. But most importantly, are you growing? Are you changing? Are you maturing? Do you find yourself in the very place that you started? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that real Christians grow up. And Lord, we want to have a deep and a rich knowledge of God. We want to be strong. But we also want to remember where our strength comes from. And Lord, we pray that we'd, we would bring our need to you. That we would trust you. That we would rely on you. That, Lord, we would look for opportunities for friendship and fellowship with other believers. And, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't shame you. And that we would share with others our wonderful Savior. Tell them the truth about Jesus, his love for them his willingness to forgive them and the hope that he's willing to place in each and every person's heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.